Welcome to Into the Verse, the Parsha podcast where we dive deep into the verses to share new and unexpected insights into the text you thought you knew. Welcome to Into the Verse. This is Ari Levison, and in just a moment, I'll be joined by my colleague Tech Fahacht to talk about Parshat Chaisara. Before we jump in, I want to share with you that this episode turned out a little different from our usual style. You see, I noticed some really intriguing things in the Parsha, certain details that raised a lot of questions in my mind. Plus, I had found a really cool Midrash that I thought might shed some light on these questions. But I wasn't able to work out how all of the pieces went together. So I sat down with Tikva to try to figure out what all of this meant. Although we didn't manage to answer every question we raised, and even disagreed on some points, Tikva and I had a very rich and thought-provoking discussion, and we're excited to share that with you today. If these noticings spark any thoughts of your own, we'd love to hear those too. Here we are. Hi, Ari. So tell me, what are we going to be talking about today? So today we are going to be talking about Parshat Chayesara, but I want to open up by looking at what I think is just a really fascinating and perplexing Midrash. Um, this is from Breshi Rabbah. Um, and it begins at the time when God came to create Adam, the first man. Basically, all of the ministering angels split into two camps to argue for or against creating man. Tikva, if I asked you, uh, should we create man or not? What would you say? I, I think we'd have to go with create man. I want to be here. Yeah, I think I'll be in, fa- in favor yeah. of creating man too. But yeah. the ministering angels are split. Okay. Some of them say, don't create man. And the rest of them say, do create man. And so it quotes a verse from Psalms here. Chesed ve'emet nifgashu tzedek v'shalom nashako. Kindness and truth, chesed ve'emet, meet up, and righteousness and peace, kiss. What, what, in, the, what in the world does that have to do with the <laughs> ministering angels arguing to, for or against creating man? Um, well, so it goes on to explain that it seems that the angels split into four camps each camp represents a certain one of these values of God. Chesed, Emet, Tzedek, and Shalom. And each of these values, and each of these angels going along with these values, are going to argue for or against creating man. So just to be clear, there's one group of angels that are the Chesed angels. They're going to speak from the lens of Chesed. That's, yeah. that's their primary concern. Right. Okay, cool, interesting. Yeah. So Chesed, Omer, Yibare, uh, the divine value of kindness, or maybe it's the angels representing that value, argue, you should create man. Because man does acts of kindness. Ve'emet Omer, al Yibare. But truth says, don't create man. Shikulo shikarim, because man is completely lies. Hmm. Whatever that means. And then tzedek and shalom, uh, righteousness and peace. They also take sides. Tzedek on sets dakot. Righteousness says create man because man does righteous acts. Peace says don't create man because man is full of strife. So it's two verses too. How are you going to break mm-hmm. the tie? What does God do? No tell emet. He takes truth. Vehishlicho la'aret. <laughs> he throws it to the earth. So he throws truth to the ground as if, Men who are just full of lies, but if they're created on the earth somehow, that's going to make them truthful? I'm confused by how this resolves the problem. So Tikva, I think you're actually anticipating the rest of this Midrash, because I would have read that and I would have thought what that means is that God's basically saying, fine, like, truth, I don't need you. Goodbye. 
See you oh, And with truth out of the way, God can continue creating man, and it's a 2-1 vote in favor. But the angels respond to God first mm-hmm. and say, Master of the worlds, how could you disgrace your very seal? Implying that somehow emet, truth, is God's seal. In other words, like this value of truth, it's extremely important to you, maybe the most important thing to you. How could you do such a thing as to just completely disgrace it by throwing it to the ground? Mm-hmm. And then they continue and say, Let truth rise up from the earth. And then they quote another verse, the very next verse in the same chapter of Psalms. Truth will sprout forth from the earth. And it ends here and, and God seems to basically give them the last word. So truth is going to have this, this comeback where it can sprout forth from the earth whatever that means. Uh Uh-huh. Actually, this isn't a way of disgracing it. Somehow it will grow from the earth. It will rise from the earth. So like you were saying, the way I mistakenly read it initially is actually uh, kind of where the medrash ends up. But it is confusing to think about what does that mean, almost like these little truth flowers that are going to sprout from the earth. Uh, It's a beautiful image, but I don't know what it actually means. Right. And so I think this this really raises, raises a ton of questions for us. As we were asking before, what does it mean for God to throw truth to the earth? And what does it mean for truth then to sprout from the earth? I think these are all really important questions. And another question this brings up for me, um, and I think this actually requires us to read the Midrash very carefully, uh, particularly that first verse it quoted when it introduced uh, these four divine values. Particularly, let's look at chesed ve'emet. It says, chesed ve'emet nifgashu. So kindness and truth, they meet up. Tzedek v'shalom nashako. And righteousness and peace, they kiss. Now, if, if, if you just picture that in your mind, what does that make it sound like? Yeah, so Nivgashu, I actually would read it almost like they're meeting up, like they're connected, they're going to right. collaborate. <laughs> Knowing the Medrash, I know that they are at odds with each other. But if I just read that Pasuk, I would not think that these two concepts are going to be combatants now. Right. It certainly doesn't seem like they'd be opposite sides of a fight. Yeah. Um, and that's what's going to bring us to this week's Parsha. I was going to ask what <laughs> this had to do with Chayasar. Yeah. Fascinating as it is. But I'm glad right. that you mentioned it. So sometimes when we look at Midrashim at Aleph Beta, we're, we're making the argument that this Midrash is actually a commentary on this story. Um, that's actually not what we're going to do here today. Um, I think the two are, are kind of operating parallel. But the reason why I brought up this Midrash in the first place and the reason why it makes me think so much about this Parsha is because I think in this week's Parsha, Emet and Chesed, they do meet up. They are <laughs> Nifkashim. Are you having stumped? I'm very curious, <laughs> but I, I can't off the top of my head think where you're going with this. Okay, so let's take a look at the Parsha. By way of background, uh, Sarah's just died, and Abraham turns to his servant, uh, who the Midrash tells us is Eliezer, and because it's a lot easier to give the guy a name, we're going to refer to him (laughs) from here on out as Eliezer. So Abraham turns to Eliezer and says, I want you to go find a wife for my son Isaac, with one condition. And Tikva, let me just ask, from your memory, (laughs) what's that one condition? From what I remember, he he doesn't want him to take from the women around him. He wants him to go back to his hometown. Right. And of course, we know from the ending um, that it actually is his relative, Rebecca. But all he really says to Eliezer is, look, these women in the land of Canaan, where I am right now, I don't want Isaac marrying any of them. 
go to the land of Haran, the place that I'm from, find Isaac a wife from there. Seemingly, Eliezer could go, find the first woman he sees there, bring her back, and he has fulfilled his quest. He's done exactly what Abraham has told him to do. Yeah, I, I think we kind of read with the ending in mind and assume like, almost like Abraham had Rebecca in mind. But you're right, he's just saying he really doesn't want the women who are around them. Right, which makes it interesting why when Eliezer gets to Haran, he sets up this test to find the right woman for Isaac. Now, we could go on a whole tangent about why Eliezer sets up this test at all. I don't want to get distracted by that now, but I do want to read the language that he uses when he turns to God and he asks him to help him be successful in fulfilling this test. So, Tikva, if you don't mind reading for us, uh, Genesis chapter 24, starting in verse 12. Um, so he turns to Hashem, he says, The God of my master, Abraham. Grant me good fortune this day and, and do chesed, kindness, with my master, Abraham. And so there's that word chesed, kindness, right? What we saw from the Midrash. Yeah. So he's asking God to, to do a chesed with him. I guess help him find this woman. And then this is the sign he's looking for. I stand here by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are going to come and to draw water the young maiden who I say to her, uh, lower your jar and let me drink from it. And she says, I'll let you drink. And also I'm going to give your camels to drink. Then let that be the one who essentially God is, is declaring um, will be for your servant Yitzhak. And that's how I'll know God has done kindness with my master. Right, so Eliezer is asking God, to help him in this quest. And he describes this from God as an act of chesed, an act of kindness. The story goes on um, exactly what Eliezer hopes. A woman comes along, he asks her for water. She gives not just him, but his camel's water. So perfect, he's found this amazing woman that was super easy. And he asks her, but Miat, whose daughter are you? In other words, like, what family are you from? And she responds mm -hmm. in uh, verse 24. I'm the daughter of Betuel, um, the son of Milka, who was born to Nahor. And Nahor just so happens to be... Abraham's brother. So this right. is um, right in the family. And again, we said, like, knowing the ending, of course, this was like I was supposed to be. But if you've never read the end before, this is news. Abraham yeah. didn't ask for this. <laughs> Eliezer didn't ask for this. Seemingly, Abraham would have been happy with any woman from the land of Haran, and Eliezer would have been happy with any woman from the land of Haran who also passed this test where she gives water to the camels. It just so happens to be that the woman they find passed this test and is this relative of Abraham and Isaac's. Yeah, it, it does feel almost too good to be true. Almost too good to be true. And what do you do when, when God does something for you that's too good to be true? In verse 26, right? Mm -hmm. he, he bows down to God, and in verse 27, he blesses God. Tikva, can you read? Blessed is the God of my master Abraham, who did not withhold his kindness for Amito. Oh, and his truth. Yeah. <laughs> right? So Eliezer says, God, you have not abandoned your kindness nor your truth from my master Abraham. You have led me on the way to the house of my master's brother. 
remember when Eliezer asked God to help him out with this test, he asked for? Chesed. He just asked for chesed. There was no mention of Emes. Right. And now when he's thanking God for it, he thanks God not just for the chesed, the kindness he did, but also the emet, the truth. Here, chesed and, and emet are meeting up mm-hmm. for whatever that means. It's also interesting, by the way, this is the first time the word emet comes up in the whole Torah. But if you think about the medrash, mm. it, it feels like <laughs> this is the moment <laughs> where the, the emes is now starting to sprout. Right. It's very confusing, though. Yeah. Because <laughs> when I think about emes, I think about some kind of fact or some kind right. of truth. But this isn't about reflecting on the past, which is where we normally think of truth. Like, did that happen? Did it not happen? It just feels like very out of place here. That, that's a great point. Nothing here feels like truth in the way that we think about factual truth. Right? Two plus two equals four. True. The sky is blue. Yeah. True. What about this is truth? I think it's worth probably trying to expand ever so slightly our definition of what emet, what truth actually is. I think the best way to think about this is the way the Rambam describes in uh, Mora Nevuchim, in the Guide to the Perplexed. He's talking about in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So if he says, okay, before Adam and Eve gained this knowledge of good and evil, how did they, if it wasn't through a lens of good and evil, how did they view the world? He says it was through a lens of truth and falsehood, I believe. Right. That they didn't have like a preference invested in their relationship to reality. I think that they were just looking through the lens of is it true, is it not true, without any um, subjective investment. Right, exactly. And what uh, Rambam says is that basically after they eat from the tree of knowledge, they actually lose this view of emet, this view of like truth versus falsehood. And instead, they have this view of good and bad. Basically, good and bad is subjective. You feel that there's good and bad. And you, you might have God's version of good and bad and your version of good and bad and someone else's version of good and bad. It is inherently a subjective mm-hmm. evaluation of the world that you're looking at. Yeah. Whereas truth and falsehood are inherently objective. Yeah, I think when we talk about good and bad, if we want good, we don't want bad. That's inherent in what good and evil are. Um, one is preferred over the other. Um, whereas true and false, I mean, truth is just preferred over falsehood because it's true, but it, there isn't that same vested interest, right? You can have kind of the cold mathematician as a kind of cliche, right? Of just like, <laughs> I'm just a witness here. I have no preference for where this ends up. I'm just following the steps and seeing what is. Right, exactly. And so in that sense, I think that we can look at truth as not just factually two plus two equals four, but kind of more broadly, something that has this objective rightness. Like it is just the way it is and it's right. Right. You don't have to like it. It doesn't have to feel good. It just because it's there, that's its value. Exactly. So coming back to the story, the question then is, what is this truth that Eliezer is talking about in the story? Mm -hmm. And I think we just, we have to do some algebra here, right? Eliezer asks for kindness. God Mm -hmm. responds with kindness and truth. So what is there that Eliezer didn't ask for and God did respond with? Well, I think this is where you're going. Eliezer asked for chesed. And what he asked for was this particular sign of this woman who would give him water to drink and water the camels. And that's what he got. So let's right. say that's the chesed, right? That feels nice and neat. And 
the thing that's left over then is her lineage. The MS, I guess, would be that she comes from the whore, that she has this close um, relationship to Abraham's family, which is a truth. It is a fact. I, I could see why Eliezer would be really excited by that fact because it might feel right. It might feel like, oh, yeah, this is definitely the woman that Abraham would want or there's something nice about it. I- I- I'm struggling with why he would call that truth. Right. It It is surprising. It's not what I would have thought you would mm-hmm. describe something as true, but it seems to be what the algebra would suggest. And just to support that, before any of you listening are like, this is crazy, Aryan Tekvar, in what way is this truth? If you continue reading the story, what happens next is that Rebecca invites Eliezer to her home. He meets her whole family and he recounts everything that just happened to him. He gets to this part about how uh, Rebecca told him who she was. And in verse 48, he says, I bowed down to God and I blessed God, the God of my master Abraham. Who has guided me on the path of emet, of truth, to take the daughter of my mm-hmm. master's brother for his son. Which, by the way, is the same line he uses before, right? When he thanks God for the chesed and emet, mm-hmm. he says, And now he's repeating that same line. He's spelling out explicitly that the path that God led him on towards the house of his master's brother, that is the path of emet, the path of truth. Right. I'll tell you what I find so funny about it. If there's a family bond, I think that's the place where we immediately say someone's actually blinded to the truth, right? Or like (laughs) nobody sees their family through clear eyes. (laughs) So it feels just funny to see it tied to truth. I would think that's the one place where people often don't have clear vision. Except, in fact, no no human even asked for this to happen. God was the matchmaker here. Yeah, it's not even what Eliezer asked for. That wasn't the sign. He didn't say, can you send me to uh, Abraham's relatives? And, and that's how I'll know. Uh, so you're right. This is totally like God's little insertion in this whole drama. Right. So what the text seems to be saying is that when God makes this match between Isaac and Rebecca, that is somehow emet. That is somehow true. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's up to us to try to figure out how to understand what about that is true, because it's not immediately obvious. But if I could float a a suggestion and and tell me what you think of this, I wonder if chesed is doing something for someone that they want, and maybe emet is doing what they actually need. So in the context of the story, Eliezer asks for God to do something for him, if God responds and God does what Eliezer asks, that's chasad. It's kindness. He did what Eliezer wanted, if, wanted from him. Mm-hmm. But God doesn't stop at what Eliezer wants. God also does something else. Something that was meant to happen is supposed to be this way. And it seems like that is described as emet. That is truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all right, let me see if I can say this back to you. Because what I hear you saying is, here's Eliezer. He is on this mission. And like you pointed out before, Avram actually doesn't give him a lot of direction. He says, basically, go to a city and find a wife for my son. And so Eliezer's on this journey without a lot of direction. And he turns to God and he says to God, you know what, like, just do this favor for me. I have no idea how to pick out of this entire population some woman who's going to be the right person for Yitzhak. Just give me a sign. And so that happens. And at that point, Eliezer 
uh, let's say we just stop there, he feels like God has done this kindness for him. He's found this woman. She seems to have this nice characteristic as well of kindness. You know, you can't really tell from the fact that someone's just watered your camp. It's a very nice act. It doesn't mean in 20 years she's going to be able to uh, be the right person for Yitzchak. But sure, it's a good sign. But then what you're saying is, in a sense, God is saying to Eliezer, yes, that sign was a great sign, but there is something maybe as important, which is her lineage or her connection to Abraham. And this is the right person. Yeah, it seems like Eliezer was asking for a good match. And God provided a perfect match. Um, And that seems to be truth. Um, And and we could probably go into a whole other episode just about why this match was so perfect. A lot of that has to do with a whole video where Rabbi Foreman talks about Abraham's origin. Basically, um, Abraham and Nahor had a third brother. Uh, his name was Haran, mm-hmm. um, and he died leaving behind three children, two daughters, Milka and Yiska, and a son, Lot. Um, Abraham and uh, Nahor, both in this great act of kindness of their own, again, kind of speaking of acts of kindness, they both marry their deceased brother's uh, daughters. Um, today, that might sound not okay, but at that time, everyone married family members, and, and certainly for them to basically take these two orphaned women and not just make the members of the house, but elevate them to be the matriarchs of these two households. Um, That was a real act of kindness. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting the way that Rivka describes herself here. She doesn't just say, oh, I'm Batuel's girl. She says, I'm the daughter of Batuel, who was born to Milka and to Nahor. And this is actually Mm -hmm. the second of three times that the Torah describes Rebecca in this way, that she specifically was the offspring of this marriage between Nahor and Milka, this marriage of kindness. And of course, the Midrash tells us that Yiska and Sarah uh, were actually the same person, which means that the other offspring of this parallel act of kindness was the child of Abraham and Sarah, who was? Yitzchak. Yitzchak. And Isaac and Rebecca are these these two offspring from these parallel stories of acts of kindness are now coming together. And I, I wonder if that is possibly what makes this match, you know, really so beautiful and perfect um, and not just not just yeah. great, but true. What it makes me think about is Eliezer's sign was about generic kindness. It was, I want the woman who's going to see a stranger and just give to them. And what you're pointing out now is that what God is saying is, that's great. But there's something else that maybe you need, which is someone who, it's not just that she's coming from his family. She's coming from a situation where she experientially knows something that maybe Yitzhak knows. They have some kind of similarity in their family, in their psychology, in their view of themselves, in their identity. There's something particular to who they are as people that really makes them unusual and they could connect over. Something yeah. about it instinctively rings very true, though I'm still having a hard time articulating it. I wonder if the reason why a match like this, it feels right. It feels like there's something about that that is true, but it's hard to articulate is because it's really what the Midrash was saying. Like when God came to create mankind, half the angels said, are you sure you want to create mankind? Mankind's really bad at truth. Mankind is full <laughs> of shikarim, is full of lies. Because truth is something that's actually, it's really hard for us as humans to grasp, especially when we're talking about this divine level truth, the things that just 
as the angels say, our, our God's seal. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for our human minds to to even understand that, let alone to identify it and act on it. So you brought us to the first place in the Torah where truth comes up. And it's a place where it comes up that is confusing um, on a shot level. Like on a simple <laughs> level, it's confusing yeah. why this would be called truth. And then you're showing another layer to this, which is not only is the Torah bringing up truth in this confusing way with somehow this match is God's great act of truth, but it's in contrast to a chesed, which is much more on a face value, just simple. Like Eliezer yeah. asks for a sign, God gives him a sign. All of that is chesed. And then truth is a totally different thing. Truth is when God kind of enters into our lives and sets things up by his own calculations. Maybe he knows what's going on, but we don't really know. I I, I kind of hear you saying yeah. like, yeah. this is where God comes in and takes the reins. And then you put that next to the medrash and you see that in the very creation of of humanity, what it means to be human is to, in a sense, be in tension with truth. And what I kind of hear you saying is, God went ahead and created man, but in this story where he first, in a sense, introduces Amos in the Torah, you can kind of see all of these complications playing out. There's a truth beyond us that maybe, like the Medrash says, is is in the earth and will sprout from the earth and hopefully will find us on our paths, but we we don't always recognize it. Or, or I guess Eliezer did recognize it after the fact, but it doesn't look the way we might expect. Before we go on, I want to pause for a moment and take stock of our conversation so far. Tikva and I looked at the very first time the Torah mentions Emet in the hopes that this story might give us some definition of what the Torah means by truth in the context of kindness. But as it turns out, it wasn't that simple. When Eliezer uses the word Emet, he doesn't spell out exactly what he thinks is true. It sounds as if he's talking about the extra thing God did for him, on top of the chesed he originally asked for. His request was, please God, do chesed for Abraham and show me a kind young woman to marry Isaac. And God does just that. But God does something else too, and points out a woman from Abraham's own family. Then Eliezer thanks God for granting him both chesed and Emet. Plus, Eliezer tells Rebecca's family that God led him on the road of truth to find them. So Tikva and I both felt pretty clear about what the text is telling us. This particular match is somehow Emet, true. But that brought us to a harder question. Why does the text call this match Emet? It's not something factual like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It doesn't fit with our usual ways of thinking about truth. This is where a discussion became more speculative, because we didn't feel like we had a solid answer from the text. We looked back at this mysterious midrash from Bereshit Rabbah and the verse about truth sprouting from the land. What does that even mean? Maybe it means that Emet isn't just up in God's world. Emet could be showing up in our lives as well, but it's hard for us to recognize. That might explain why Eliezer only mentions Emet after God sends him Rebecca. He didn't even know to ask for her ahead of time. But now that it's happened, he recognizes that this match is right on a deeper level. I felt like we made some progress on the meaning of Emet in the story. But I had one more place in the parasha to show Tikva. A place where Chesed and Emet meet up one more time. I wasn't sure it would tell us more about what was so emet about this match, 
But for me, it raised another possible answer to what the Midrash means when it talks about truth sprouting forth from the earth. Here's the next part of our conversation. I think we still haven't figured out what does that mean for truth to sprout forth from the earth. But to me, this speaks to the next time in this story where truth and kindness meet up. As we said before, uh, Rebecca brings Eliezer back to our home. He meets her family. He tells them about how God led him on this path of truth. Um, and then in verse 49, he turns to them and says, Tikva. Okay. And now, if you um, mean to treat my master with chesed and emes, kindness and truth, so tell me what your decision is one way or the other. Yeah, he's asking them, are you going to do truth and kindness, chesed ve'emet, and let me know if you're going to do that or not. So, no, Tikva, what is the chesed ve'emet that he is asking from Rebecca's family? So that's where this verse kind of tripped me up a little bit. I'm not sure right. if the chesed and Emma's is like letting her go with them and approving this match. Um, but it also seems like just telling him one way or the other. It's interesting. Eliezer never actually spells out his request. He tells the whole story and then he says, and now let me know if you're going to do chesed ve'emet with me. They also don't just say yes. Right, look at what they answer in verse 50. So Levan and Betuel say this matter comes from God. We can't speak um, to you, good or bad, uh, which sounds like they're kind of agreeing and saying almost like this is not even our call. We're not making this decision. God, God has decreed this. We're just going to sit back and be silent here. Right. They're, they're basically saying it's not our call to make. And I wonder if this is really what that second part of the Midrash is about. Uh, Eliezer, um, instead of actually making the request outright, asks them to do chesed ve'emet. And I think it's easy to understand what chesed would mean, right? If they help him on his mission, they're doing chesed. They're doing a nice thing, an act of kindness. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean for him to ask them to do emet? And this to me kind of brings me back to the end of the Midrash. And look, this is speculation. I don't know um, what the true understanding of this story is, but here's my stab at it. The angels object to God creating man because they say man is full of lies. Man is, is not good at judging objectively what is right and proper and how things are, are meant to be. Mm -hmm. But at the end of this Midrash, they raise this other possibility of emet me'aretz titzmach, that truth can actually sprout from the land, which I think might mean it, it actually sprouts from human beings, that there is an opportunity and a possibility for us to actually try to figure out the truth. And so I wonder if that's what Eliezer is really presenting to, to Lavan and Betuel here. I wonder if Eliezer, right, after experiencing God at, treating him with Emmet and now appreciating the value of Emmet, wants to, to bring Emmet from the world. He wants truth to sprout forth from the earth. He wants that to be a part of what's going on. Um, 
maybe that's why instead of directly spelling out his request, he kind of just lays out the facts. He turns to Lavan Batuel and says, look, here's all the things that happened to me. It would be really great if you could do not just chesed, but also emet, right? If you could not just do what would be nice and kind and good for me, but also like what is objectively the thing that is supposed to happen. Yeah, I think what I'm seeing in this story is it's like Eliezer has this insecurity, right? He wants to make the right choice. He wants God to help him. Now he's turning to Lavan and Batua, which, I mean, he has to do, right? Like he he can't just run right, away with it, right. though in the end it is her decision. And he's saying, look, I got my sign from God. I got my extra sign from God where God seemed to like have this truth and say, hey, this is really the right person. Now he's going to Lavan and Batua and asking them to give their seal of approval on this match. And it's interesting then that their answer would be, well, we don't know, but this seems to be from God, right? It seems to be this is what God wants. And so, you know, who are we to, to put our subjective opinions of, of good and bad mm-hmm. on top of this? And I think maybe they know the Medrash in a sense or intuit it, that they are subjective beings. They are invested. But um, truth is coming from another source. And that's what the idea of it swinging from the earth kind of seems to me. And it kind of takes a weight off our shoulders. Like we're not made to be good (laughs) (laughs) at, at recognizing truth, but maybe we're supposed to be humble enough to know that about ourselves. Took for this this uh, went somewhere I wasn't <laughs> expecting. Um, this was a ton of fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, this was really fun. It's very meta. I feel like we've gotten somewhere, and you've shown me something in these verses I didn't see before. And I also still feel like there's so much that is um, elusive and beyond us. But I love seeing how many different ways there are to read, how many different questions can come up, and um, it really does feel like we're humans in this endeavor trying to understand to ourselves. At the end of our conversation about the meaning of Emet in Parshat Chayisara, Tikva and I were left with two unanswered questions. So now we're turning to you, the listeners, to chime in. One question is, what exactly is the Emet that Eliezer is asking Rebecca's family to do? Maybe he's just asking them to let Rebecca make this match with Isaac. But then why doesn't he say that? Instead, he lays out the whole story and doesn't even make the request. So we came up with another idea. Maybe he's asking them to recognize that this match is objectively true and right. And the way they respond seems to fit with that. Instead of immediately saying yes or no, their answer is, this is from God. That answer made us feel like our theory could make sense. But we didn't feel like we had enough evidence to prove it. Our second unanswered question is the one we asked at the very beginning. What does the Midrash mean when it says that truth will sprout forth from the earth? Tikva and I had different theories about this. Tikva suggested that truth isn't something that's found up in heaven, in God's realm. It does get revealed in our lives, just not the way we might expect. My idea was that truth can sprout forth from the earth when human beings push themselves to recognize what God would see as true and to act on it. And Eliezer was giving Lavan and Matuel an opportunity to do just that. To me, that has a really powerful implication. No one expects us as human beings to have a perfect understanding of what is true and right in the world. But at the same time, we have an opportunity, maybe even a responsibility, 
to do our best to seek out that truth and act on it. So now it's your turn. If you have any ideas, please drop us a line. We can't wait to hear from you. Just click the link in the episode description. This episode was recorded by Ari Levison together with Tikva Hecht. This episode was produced by Sarah Penseau. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. Our production manager is Adina Blaustein. Our senior editor is Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>